Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zune, and all major podcast providers. You can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter to find out about upcoming guests, features, events, and other shows on our network. If you have any questions or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or send us an email to questions at theorganicview.com. Today my guest is Peter Bain, and we're going to be talking about his book, The Permaculture Handbook. Garden Farming for Town and Country. Now, for those of you that are avid gardeners, you understand the value of permaculture. It's a practical way to apply ecological design principles to food, housing, and energy systems, making growing fruits, vegetables, and livestock easier, more productive, and more sustainable. This book is the book for your collection. And for those of you that are especially looking to get more involved with your community, or perhaps uh, in what some of our audience members are doing, they're actually traveling to different locations where there has been tremendous devastation and are beginning to work together with the community to rebuild. And especially since more and more people are becoming connected with how their food is produced and looking to work with others in order to improve upon that and grow more and more food organically, not just for themselves, but for the community, permaculture is becoming so incredibly important because we're getting to the point where people really understand that we need to have zero waste. And it's it's a matter of respecting the environment, respecting the resources, and also respecting um, the earth and the other beings that we share it with. So I would like to welcome to the show Mr. Peter Bain. Good afternoon, Peter, and welcome to the show. Hi, June. I'm glad to be here. So glad to have you. I mean, such an honor. And uh, I know that uh, my fellow Master Gardeners are going to be quite jealous that I get to spend this next hour talking to you. Uh, So I would like to say hello to everybody. And um, Peter, can you please tell our audience about yourself? You're such a remarkable person, and uh, more people need to know who you are. Well, uh, the book is uh, the, the occasion of my publication of this book, Permaculture Handbook, is the occasion for my uh, coming out a bit more. But I have been working in the journalistic trenches in permaculture for 20 years as uh, publisher and editor of a Permaculture Activist magazine. I'm sure at least some of your listeners will have seen it or read it. Um, we've been reporting on the permaculture movement in North America and, and other parts of the world for a long time, and now we're the oldest running publication in the world. I have uh, traveled in pursuit of my interest in in sustainable systems design, and I've seen lots of different parts of the U.S. and Canada, and also have worked overseas a little bit. 
my background's very eclectic. I worked for 10 or 12 years in food service, and I've been a land surveyor, and I have, uh, you know, been self-employed, I guess, as a, a worker in the intellectual fields for the last 20-some years, trying to document for people what, what permaculture has done and can do so that they can really take up this quite remarkable set of technologies and this understanding. This, it's almost a worldview uh, to help repair the planet, which is what we all need to be doing. Yes, we definitely do need to do what we can as individuals. You know, sometimes that means that we don't necessarily have to take on uh, all sorts of different projects, but it's just a matter of taking responsibility for the things that we can is what really makes the huge difference. That's right. And, and one of the things that... Uh, I would like to talk about is the production of our food. Now, it's an interesting evolution, if you will, how we've gone from how with the way that food was farmed many years ago where we were initially an agricultural uh, society, and now we've gone to uh, a place where we're basically manufacturing and exporting so much of our food. Um, can you talk about farming in general and just some of the things that you've seen, especially um, in your travels and some of the changes that you're seeing currently? Well, farming is, uh, first of all, we should get some perspective on it. Humans have been on the planet in some form like the present one, standing up and walking on two feet and playing with fire for over a million years. But uh, farming, as we uh, have any concept of it, is about 10,000 years old. It, it, it has emerged after the end of the last ice age in this period of mild climate that we're seeing starting to be disrupted by human effects. Um, and only in the last maybe 300 years have, has it begun to uh, get any grip on, on uh, the real empirical basis of what works. Humans have been exploiting the built-up carbon in soils, humus, organic matter that was created by forests and grasslands and uh, moved around by glaciers, and not really understanding why crops grew, but growing them nonetheless. So we've exhausted a lot of soils in the process. Uh, somewhere along in the 19th century, we began to mechanize things a bit, and then uh, as we got into the 20th, we added fossil fuels into the mix instead of horsepower. We had horsepower under the hood, so to speak. And the whole thing has accelerated without uh, uh, a corresponding increase in understanding. Uh, at the same time, as I write in the Permaculture Handbook, quietly in the background, some people have been assembling the actual scientific story about how soils are built and how fertility is maintained and how plants can be grown healthily and animals can be fed in a way that nourishes them and the people who consume them. And that's a kind of unsung story, but it, it starts with people like uh, Albert Howard in, in um, India and uh, even um, others in this country who brought his doctrines forward, Aldo mm -hmm. Leopold and his ethic of the land, and the whole concern about soil that came out of the Dust Bowl era. Uh, we, at the same time, industrial agriculture is racing ahead with mechanization, now increasingly with biological manipulation, genetically modified organisms, after a whole heavily extensive chemical era from the last 50 or 60 years. 
So we're putting enormous burdens on uh, the land and on our bodies because these residues stay in the food uh, with, in the name of production. It's kind of a pursuit of quantity out of a legitimate concern for hunger, but, but um, it's kind of misguided. It's trying to apply the logic of the assembly line to the growing of food, which has always been a far more um, art artisanal process as humans have known it. What's possible now and what's emerging, along with all the horrors of genetic manipulation and chemical poisoning and soil destruction by machines, is that we actually understand how to build and maintain soil, how to regenerate organism um, environments, and we have the possibility to democratize that. That is, we can make a lot of people aware of how to do that so that food can be grown, healthy food can be grown almost anywhere on the planet even in people's backyards, and that's much of what I write about. So I think that's the edge right now that we're working on, is moving mm -hmm. food production out of the fields which are growing industrial product for fizzy drinks and car paints and GMO feed for animals, you know, into backyards and front yards and, and alleys and boulevards and where people actually live so that it can be fresh and healthy and we can know where it comes from and we know what made it good. That's what I'm trying to promote. Thank you. Now, one of the biggest problems with soil is once the topsoil has been destroyed, people don't seem to understand that it's not just a matter of importing other topsoil. Uh, you know, you don't even know if uh, what you're working with until you actually have it tested. But the bottom line is, is that rebuilding topsoil is not easy. And especially with some of these chemicals that have been applied to farmland, mm -hmm. restoring that land, restoring that topsoil is quite a challenge. Yes, uh, we have. I mean, there, there's good news there too, but most people are not practicing it. So, you know, in general, the story is kind of grim because a lot of organic matter. I mean, and we're talking billions of tons of carbon, which is now much of it in the atmosphere, causing or contributing to global um, climate upset. Uh, has been destroyed by the way we've farmed. And uh, it takes some time, it takes uh, some years, several, to restore carbon levels, but also to restore the levels of life activity, because that's something that I think our farm farmers, perhaps individually, but not our system of farming, uh, understands that, that soil is alive. It's... Uh, value is rest primarily on the organisms that live in it and, and on it and uh, the residues that they leave behind. That's what enables plants to grow well. And everything we do in our conventional agriculture works to destroy that life, pretending that it can substitute chemical inputs, um, NPK, from a bag or a spray uh, to get the fertility that's been, um, that's been beaten out of the soil. We, we know better, though, how now to create it. So that's much of what I want people to take away. As we move forward, how can we strive to achieve a zero-waste, um, just zero-waste in agriculture? Is, is that even possible? Well, uh, the, the, it should be easier in agriculture than absolutely anywhere else, but it's something we need to practice throughout society. There's The whole concept of a way has 
is going away. That is, there's no place to throw things much anymore. It's all filled up. Um, in agriculture, everything organic should be food for something else. That's one yeah. of the principles in permaculture, that all wastes are food for some other organism. And if you're not using it, you're failing to exploit a possibility that's right in front of you. In other words, you're impoverishing yourself. So we we can think of recycling as something that goes on even at the molecular level in order to maintain soil fertility, and it needs to go on at every level. In our society, the biggest thing we could do would be to separate all organics from all non-organics and compost the former, and then find some way to reuse or recycle the latter. Uh, in agriculture, that should be relatively simple because things coming out of the soil are organic. Um, it's regrettable that there's so much toxin used in conventional agriculture, but in the right circumstances, that can that too can be broken down, and uh, fungi in the soil are capable of it, of shredding it and making it harmless again, provided we give them the conditions. Agriculture doesn't provide it, but gardening can provide it, and our knowledge could bring it to agriculture eventually. In regards to conventional agriculture, do you think that it's going to become even more difficult for conventional farmers to make that transition to organic farming as the uh, agrochemical companies produce these different products that are really, um, they just cause deep devastation in the soil, and in which some, in some cases, some of these chemicals have a half-life of, say, 19 years. I think it's, it's fair to say that there's something of a war going on between the interests of the chemical and, and uh, genetic engineering industries to gain control over land and the food supply and all the resources of biology versus all the rest of us. They make claims that they're increasing production or feeding the world, but that, that's a myth that's being propagated. It has no real substance. Mm. Um, we, you know, it, it gets harder for people in agriculture uh, to to shift. Uh, to, you know, people, it requires a sort of almost a religious conversion, uh, kind of cathartic experience in many cases. Some people are still able to do it rationally and say, oh, well, there's better money in organics because of this, or I prefer this because I want to protect my family, or I think it's responsible, or whatever. But the marketplace is, the, is not a level playing field. It's being tilted very strongly by political activity on the part of the agribusiness conglomerates. Uh, as they lock up patent rights in, in organisms, as they apply stronger and stronger poisons to the land as they make claims that their genetically modified organisms drifting into farmers' fields give them property rights and other outrageous um, you know, doctrines. Uh, there's also the whole question of support from the community. And in some places, the community that would support healthy food is largely locked out, either by ignorance or other means from influencing the way production happens. I think of the parts of the Delta in the United States down along the Tennessee and Mississippi rivers. And, you know, it's it's hard to bring light to bear on the, the chemical raising of cotton or corn or, or peanuts and some of those crops. Um, so I have taken my stand with people who have a small bit of land or in, and 
in community and might find the kind of support that they need to to switch their food, their eating, their cultivation of land over to a more organic system. And I think that's small property owners, people who live in cities and suburbs and towns. And that I believe that could be the beginning of a change, a dramatic change. We could be growing at least a third, maybe a half of the food that's consumed in this country in small plots near where we live. Thank you. My next question is, if you do decide, which many people are really thinking about this if they haven't begun to do so already, uh, but I'm hearing this from so many people, and, and it's it's a constant um, comment that people are looking towards farming their own land. So if you buy or if you're renting land that you wish to farm, can you talk about some of the first things that people should do before they venture out and uh, start figuring out what they're going to be growing, so on and so forth? I mean, what are some of the basic basic things that they should be doing ahead of time before they begin farming? Well, there needs to be a serious process of of self-assessment and then assessment of the land and the environment and the community where you would consider doing this. Um, I would like to encourage everyone to to grow where they are, but in some cases that's perhaps not as promising as it needs to be. So you you want to look seriously at the level of environmental contamination and threat around you, and if it's too high, maybe you should be in a different place. Um, if it's acceptable, then do you have support in the way of uh, family, friends, household members, of community, neighbors, who would be, if not willing to help, at least willing to tolerate, because farming can sometimes be a little messy, especially the transition from a tidy um, urban or suburban landscape with clipped grass and flowers in their beds all standing up straight mm. to something where, well, let's see, we're, we've got a pile of mulch over there and some manure over here, and my gosh, there's chickens running around amongst things, and what's what's going on here? I mean, <laughs> So you have to have a measure of support. So these are the parts you need to ask yourself, the questions you need to explore before you start, and then you need to do some reading and some study, and you need to go and kind of poke your nose into some farming operations nearby, especially small ones on the same scale you want to work, and see what it looks like and talk to people. And, you know, there are farming conferences all over the country, usually in the winter months, because that's when farmers are not working so hard. And it's a good place to go and take some workshops and talk to people and ask around and get some information. That's what I'd recommend people do who, who are wanting to put a toe in the water. Um, and the other thing I tell people, and I tell this to all my students, is, you know, if you have a little bit of land, even if you're renting a plot and you can work a little of the backyard, learn to grow five plants this year. It doesn't matter. Pick them out, you know, beans, tomatoes, salad, you know, lettuce, whatever you like. You might, you might, two of them might fail, but you'll learn something and you'll get some food. And next year you can learn five more. And within a few years, you'll have a suite of things that you know how to deal with, and you'll have begun to build up some soil um, by growing plants and uh, killing some of them, which is one of the processes by which soil is built. Thank you. Okay. Speaking of soil, can you just talk about uh, how one should go about having this soil tested and also documentation that might be available 
for the land that they're looking to farm because I mean that's something that people don't often talk about or even know to do. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, soil testing is uh, organized across most of the country. You can you can get a soil take a soil sample or you can get soil sampling boxes kits from the county extension agent or from the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and there's an office in every county in the country. That's a division of the Department of Agriculture, and the cost, the cost of the test is modest, and you get a, you know, a couple of handfuls of soil out of the top six inches, you put it in a bag or a box, and you send it off to a lab where they tell you what's in it. Uh, in urban areas where there's a uh, very likelihood, a very high likelihood of, of contamination from lead, old lead paint, lead industrial mm-hmm. products, et cetera, there's often uh, even more acute programs you can find for soil testing because they're concerned to find out where the hot spots are so that children and others are not exposed unduly. So um, that that varies from place to place, but there will, in almost every urban area, there will be a, an emphasized um, lead in soil testing process that will tell you about contamination. The other that I mentioned earlier is to give you an idea of the soil nutrient profile, how much available nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and other nutrients is in the soil, and what's the organic matter level, um, you you will find a wide range, but in most cases, most soils have been beat up, so the, the organic matter is going to be down maybe under 5%, whereas in a healthy soil, it, in a cooler climate like New York or Indiana, where I am, might be approaching 10 or even 20%. You know, We don't see that very often because we've abused our soils for a long time. But that's where you're going when you are starting to farm. In terms of evaluating land, uh, there are, you know, suitability for farming depends a little bit on the scale and the the kind of tools. If you plan to run a tractor, and I don't recommend very many people do that, then you're more interested in being able to drive it on level ground. But uh, you can you can grow quite a lot of food on almost any sort of land, provided you can stabilize soil on slopes. So if you have a if you back into a ravine, or if your land is rolling, or if you have uh, you know boulders in the middle of the backyard, there's still things you can do. Um, obviously, the more ground you have, and the more the deeper the soil, the better off you are to start with. And then the the rest of it is things like light. You know, is it is the land you want to work covered in trees? Well, maybe consider uh, some other place, or mm, becoming a tree farmer, or growing certain, you know, woody crops. But So you've got to have a measure of light, and then you've got to have a source of water. You can't farm and raise plants without water. Do you have a well? Do you have city water? Do you have a roof that you can catch water off into a rain barrel or a water tank or a pond? Those are all basic questions to start out with. And then you consider more sophisticated things like the climate and the microclimate. Are you in the shadow of buildings or hills? Or do you uh, get, is it a frost pocket where you are, or do you get high winds at certain times of the year? Those are all in considering the impact of the environment, and any farmer lives according to the weather. Thank you. Now, I'm noticing your the questionnaire that you have, and some of the questions that you list are extremely important, especially since the environment in many areas has significantly changed due to natural occurrences or disasters in some cases, such as... As well as human history, of course. Of course. 
but for example, in Colorado right now, um, uh, my friend Tom Theobald was telling me about some brush fire that is consuming, I think he said, something like 40,000 acres. That's a lot of land yes. that has been burned. Now, considering the wildlife that occupy that land, if you live in that area or if you're looking to move into an area that has just experienced that type of devastation, the wildlife factor is a very big issue, not to mention the fact that in other areas where maybe there is construction going on and they are building in areas where there was never any type of uh, housing and whatnot mm -hmm. before. How do you recommend people cope with the wildlife factor? Because it's something that you really can't avoid, and once you buy the land or once you lease the land, it's something that could pose or could become, rather, a very big problem. Yes. Well, on, on the larger end of the scale of, of small farms that I write about in the handbook, the permaculture mm -hmm. handbook, people who might be raising animals on pasture, in which case livestock are less of an issue. They can be tolerated and even integrated. Um, but for people on small acreage, particularly in suburban kinds of situations, or the, um, the pressure, particularly I would say from deer in most parts of the country, is very high, uh, partly because of the kinds of disturbances you've just described. Development, fires, other things are displacing animals. Where are they going? They're going into urban areas. And they can be severe predators on gardens and on uh, produce. So we here in our on our two-thirds uh, acre in, in just outside Bloomington, Indiana, have fenced the entire lot with an eight-foot fence. We've got a wire fence up around. You know, There's a lot of open land, wooded land and pasture land and others around us. And so I don't feel the deer are being prevented from surviving, but there's hordes of them, literally. They stand in the street in the middle of the afternoon and eye the garden. It's kind of like, hmm, if one of us is going to eat, and I think I'd rather it was me. And since I don't feel comfortable shooting them, because I have neighbors across the street and it's not hunting season, then I need to keep them out. And so the fence has given us a leg up. The other option for people is uh, one or two good dogs to keep the deer at bay, and then the dog has to live outdoors. Um, I, you know, I'd like to say it was otherwise, but because we've removed the large predators, mm -hmm. there are too many deer, and you don't have to go very far but drive down the, you know, Pennsylvania Turnpike to know that's true. There's a carcass every mile or so in the summer. Yeah, what a shame. Yeah. When it comes to conserving water, I mean, there, there have been unexpected droughts that have occurred in different pockets not just here in the United States, but in other parts of the globe where all of a sudden you find an area that seems to be green and plush mm. without water because of the lack of rainfall. That's right. It's happening here right now. We're having a very dry spring. It was in the southeast a few years ago, and it's moving around the country. It's, it's a severe issue, and people need to wake up to it. And then the, the climate shift makes everything more unpredictable, but... The answer is pretty much everywhere the same. We need to store more water from when it's available to when it won't be available. So in our case, we've built a couple of water tanks here, and we have four ponds on the small property. Everybody can put up a rain barrel. If you live in a house, your house sheds, your roof sheds water, and constant.
concentrates it in gutters, probably, and you have downspouts, and they can easily be connected to some kind of storage device. Gradually, you scale that up until you store enough water to get you through dry spells and to get your plants and your gardens through dry spells. And uh, we've taken water for granted much too long, and we've abused it consequently. So now we're experiencing wide-scale shortages or incipient drought, places where you know people will be told, you can't do this, you can't water your lawn, you can't water your garden, there is only this much, you can da-da-da-da-da, because the public authorities are strained to keep up with the demand. So I tell everyone, water that's free is coming off your roof, or maybe it's coming off your paved driveway or your parking lot, store that water, put it into a pond, put it into the soil, you will you won't regret it. What about areas, for example, uh, that, uh, like here in New York, there are some sections where West Nile virus is a very big concern, and they are imposing certain restrictions as far as collecting water because of the fear that it's going to harbor a breeding ground for mosquitoes. Do you have any recommendations for dealing with that? Well, um, it's always difficult to deal with fear, especially when it's ungrounded and unwarranted. You have to be very rational and persistent. Mm-hmm. But uh, knowing the facts helps. First of all, water which is in a permanent pond and has almost certainly uh, attracted organisms that are going to eat mosquitoes. And so you don't get mosquitoes from real ponds that where the water stands all the time. Where you get mosquitoes living is in uh, neglected tires and uncleaned gutters and little upturned hubcaps and uh, that kind of out of sight unseen little pocket of water that's where mosquitoes breed those are the real threats we need to go in and clean those things up but if you've got a pond you almost certainly have amphibians frogs and toads that have come and they've laid eggs and those tadpoles are eating the mosquito larvae you can also introduce goldfish which is very easy they're pretty much the you know, the, the mutts of the fish world, and they, they're tough and they'll survive over the winter and in a pond of any reasonable depth. The other thing is when you store water in tanks or you want it of a higher quality, you need to exclude insects by screening, and you need to have a good cover and, and a tight seal on it, and then you're fine. You know, there's no nothing in there. The mosquitoes can't get in. That's a matter of you wouldn't want mosquitoes in your house. You have screens on your windows. You can do the same for a water tank. Exactly. Not any harder. Exactly. Thank you. It's it's so important for people to understand that uh, there are a lot of things that we can do, and it's just a matter of making the effort and just figuring out a solution that makes sense. And screening, that's something that I do with my rain barrels, and I highly recommend anyone that is looking to conserve water to do the same. Now, having said that, uh, it came to my attention that there are certain states, such as the state of Pennsylvania, where they pass some sort of uh, rules or regulations in which the the citizens are not allowed to collect rainwater. So do you have any recommendations? Well, I hadn't heard around? that about Pennsylvania. I'm yeah. not saying it isn't true, but that used to be a feature and still is in some respects in western states where the the states are under a particular constraint there's not enough water to go around and most of the water is pledged you know and allotted by by long-standing judicial decree and agreements with other states in Colorado for example 
you cannot collect rainwater uh, unless you already have groundwater rights. Um, uh, but people do anyway, actually. The state is not going around arresting people because they have rain barrels. Um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and I trust that in Pennsylvania, if that's true of what you say, that, that people will push past that because it's rather uh, silly and even unreasonable in the extreme for the state to intervene and prevent people from collecting water that falls on their own roofs or on their own ground. Um, where I am in most parts of the well-watered parts of the country, collecting rainwater is perfectly legal. And you're just, you know, I encourage people to do it intelligently. Put it in good storages where it'll be safe and, and keep bugs out of it. Yeah, they do that in Bermuda. Uh, in fact, that's mm. basically how they get their, their drinking they have, water. They depend entirely on catchment there, don't they? Yeah, and it's just fantastic. I mean, when you think about these things, especially things that we take for granted because we just simply here, well, here in America, should I say, we just go to our faucets and we have access to water that's clear, that's uh, good quality, and there are many parts of the world that don't have that luxury. And um, especially if we were in a situation where we didn't have access to fresh water and we had to rely upon rainwater for our own consumption, it's no, it, it, it's a very eye-opening situation. It changes that, your whole attitude. You become yeah. much more conservative. You realize water's not always there, and we have to think a bit about providing for ourselves. In Australia, for example, you basically can't hook up to a municipal system unless you already have roof catchment. They require you to supplement because there's just not enough water. Otherwise, everyone has to do part of the job. And it's becoming more that way. A hundred years ago in this part of the country, there were not wells were not reliable. We have limestone bedrock, just as they do in Tennessee and Missouri and Kentucky and so forth. And uh, wells might be fine for a little while, and then the limestone will dissolve away, and it'll the water level will drop, and then you can't. So people built cisterns. Our neighbor's house, built in 1890, has a cistern in the basement, still in operation. People all across the middle of the country had cisterns. So it's not that strange. It's something that our great-grandparents would have known about and lived with, it's something that people in other cultures are well accustomed to, and it's something that we should reclaim because it's part of empowering ourselves. If you know where your water is and you have a good source, then you're not you know, freaked out or worried because the power goes out and the water stops flowing or there's a storm or there's a disruption. Everyone needs a little bit more uh, resilient systems. Thank you. And my next question has to do with just the irrigation process and storing your water because, um, you know, it's it's very interesting that if there is a shortage such as, you know, what you're experiencing right now, irrigation really does make a difference and also how that water that you're utilizing is stored, especially in the process of allowing gravity to just do its, uh, its natural thing. Right. Well, um Irrigation is something that many people in the eastern part of the United States and Canada have not thought a lot about. If they have a dry spell in summer or something, they might water the garden with a hose but or put on a sprinkler. But irrigation is pretty much a requirement in all for all western gardeners. Uh, and so you lay down lines at the beginning when you're establishing your gardens or your fields. You know, you, you set up a way to deliver water to the crop. 
And then it becomes important to control that in a way that's not harmful to the soil. Where it's consistently dry, it's really necessary that irrigation be uh, allowed, be done by what's called drip methods, that is, small emitters that put a little bit of water right at the surface of the soil and don't spray it in the air, just put it by the plants where they really are. And not too much, because if you flood irrigate, you can actually bring salts up from below that can make the soil infertile and really destroy it. Now, where we have more rain and those salts regularly wash out, it's not such a worry, but increasingly we're finding ourselves with dry summers, and we're spending a lot of time watering. That's a lot of work. So we have several strategies. One of them is we put down a deep layer of mulch on all of our garden beds, I mean, and I mean six inches. Wow. We don't want the water to evaporate out of the soil. We only mm -hmm. want the water coming up through the plants that has to go through their t tissues so that water that's in the soil and water we add to the soil stays there and gets used by the plants, doesn't just evaporate to the air. And that's really important. It also keeps the soil cool, so that's better for the plants and for soil fertility and soil organisms. And the other thing is uh, to know how and when to apply water. It's good to put it in, down at night or in the morning, not in the middle of the day when a lot of it might evaporate. And uh, to focus you can help yourself a little bit by how you design your garden. We plant in clumps of plants instead of long stretched out rows so that when we water one main plant, all the things around it are going to get some of that water too. So we can kind of apply water in spots and that's easier on us. Um, and we don't have to carry water. We do fortunately are able to get hoses everywhere. So you want to think about how does your water get distributed from where it is, if it's a tap or if it's a well or if it's a tank. Uh, we have uh, our roof water collection system here, stores water above ground, and then it flows by gravity out to our hose system. So we're not applying any pumping energy to move that roof water out of the sky into the gutters and into the tank and out to the plants. We only um, use the mains water, which is pumped, when we have to as a backup. How deep should the irrigation lines be, and do you have any preferred materials to use? Well, typically irrigation lines are laid on the surface. Uh, the, the last extensions of them, which are soft plastic, um, they're, you know, if you're laying out a permanent system, you may have to distribute water for a ways, and then you need to be sure that any permanent, like hard pipes, are buried below the, free, the frost level so that if there's water left in them or that you can drain the system completely in the fall uh, that they won't freeze and rupture. Uh, but generally for this best distribution you put your irrigation lines on the surface and you tend to put an emitter or a, an opening at every at intervals or at every major plant. Um, and materials, uh, you know, these are fairly standard items. You know, I'm I, don't, I haven't had to do a lot of irrigation systems. I've been around mm -hmm. them, seen them. Um, they're not terribly complicated. You know, it's plug-and-play kind of technology. You, you can lay it out on the surface and make it go where you want. Just out of curiosity, um, with some of the, um, like, like, for example, um, I'm just trying to think of uh, a particular system that I saw where I thought it was kind of unique. Um, 
it was dug into the ground. Um, I wish I had the actual measurements. But well, one of the things that we do, and this doesn't involve pipes as much as it involves directing surface water runoff, mm -hmm. is that we contour our garden beds uh, so that they lay uh, contrary or against the flow of water. That is, water going down a slope. They're laid out across the slope. And we dig out pathways behind and uphill of all the beds, and we put that topsoil up on the beds. Then where we have runoff, like from the driveway, we move it. We use water bars, to, like speed bumps in the driveway, to push it off to the side and into the garden. And it goes into these shallow pathway ditches that we call swales, which lie on contour. And then it can pile up in there. And that has several purposes. One, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't flood the growing surface, but it sub-irrigates it at the same time. It uh, stores a lot of water temporarily in rains and allows it to infiltrate more slowly so that you catch a lot of the available water. And then it's also a place not only where we can walk and not walk on the beds, but where we can allow you know things to accumulate. Uh, sticks and the dead weeds and, uh, you know, old phone books or whatever it is we need to get rid of that's organic, we can throw it down in the path, let it break down, and then after it, the worms and the fungi have turned it into, you know, very nice stuff, throw it back up on the garden beds. So we can kind of compost, collect water, and have a pathway in the same, in the same landscape. Thank you. Uh, speaking of... Um the uh, adding to the landscape. It's interesting how animals, especially chickens, are a great uh, attribute to farms. Yes. Can you talk about what's called the poultry tractor? Sure. Uh, the um, every healthy ecosystem is composed of plants, animals, and soil microbes at a minimum. And uh, our agriculture has tended to separate, ignore the soil microbes, they're invisible, you don't see them anyway, ha-ha, because uh, mm -hmm. I separate the plants from the animals. So one of the insights permaculture rests on, the ecological insights, is let's have plants and the animals back together. But now as agriculturalists, as gardeners, we want to regulate the interaction so the animals don't eat the plants when we don't want them to. So one of the things about all animals is their mobility. Plants are rooted, but animals are mobile, and animals distribute the nutrients. Plants create them or capture them from sunlight and mobilize them out of the soil. Animals move them around. So in order to really use the services of animals, we need to keep them mobile, but in order to not let them do what we don't want, but only what we do, then we need to have them a bit restrained, but still able to move. The solution is something I call the poultry tractor called chicken tractors. There's other tractors, rabbit tractors, pig tractors. You know, you can put any number of kind of animals in a mobile cage. A poultry tractor is nice because chickens are small. You can put several of them in a box, basically a caged frame that you can drag around on the landscape. You try to make it lightweight. Maybe you put wheels on back end of it. They need a little nest box. They need some water hanging from the roof strut. They need a place to perch in the evening if you're going to leave them there. They need to uh, have a little spot if it rains where they can get out of the uh, rain. It's pretty simple. You can you can find these examples of these all over the internet, and it's in my book, of course. Um, of course. 
but the point is, you move the animals to where you want them to uproot weeds, clean up something you've just harvested, and glean the seeds and other things. And, of course, when chickens are feeding themselves by rooting around the soil <laughs> looking for bugs, they scratch. So they till a little bit on the soil, and they, they also poop out the back end, uh, their residues, which is good for plants, and they mix all that all up very nicely. So they can prepare the ground for you, clean up, solve pest problems, put them in the orchard under the trees, and they'll eat the fallen fruit that's full of worms. They'll love that. Breaks your pest cycle. So the poultry tractor is an excellent way to apply animal pressure to accelerate the building of fertility in soils and at the same time not risk having them damage young growing crops or ready to harvest food. Do you need to go crazy with the equipment? I mean, can you build it yourself using... Um, you Please know, don't go out and buy too much. <laughs> you can make most of it out of scrap at home with simple tools. The poultry tractor can be put together out of uh, salvaged lumber and poultry netting. You probably have to buy that and maybe some staples and a hammer. And you know, Once you've seen one of these, you can probably cobble one together. They're not that hard. Or you can take a plastic pipe and bend it into hoops and put poultry netting over that, you know, get a pair of wheels off a kid's broken wagon or an old lawnmower, that might help, you know, rather a home uh, tinkerer's project kind of thing. Same way with your sheds, uh, rain barrels and gutters, I mean, you know, I, I don't think people should go out and spend lots of money to try to impress the neighbors. I think they should do what the smart farmer does, which is take stuff you've got laying around or that you can salvage somewhere and make do and uh, then get something out of it. And after it's paid for itself, then maybe you can upgrade over time. You know, you, oh, well, you, that doesn't work so well. I'm going to actually invest in a proper wagon there. But in the meantime, we've made this work. That's especially important when you're not an expert and you're learning. You don't want to spend a lot of money up front on something that, you know, you don't yet quite understand. Better to tinker around with it. I think it's especially important to remember that yeah, exactly. You don't spend a lot of money on these things. Use what you have. But the one thing that you do need to keep in mind is that whatever structure you do decide to build, it should actually protect the chickens and keep yes, them safe from right. other animals, uh, especially predatory animals such mm -hmm. as foxes and uh, wolves, whatever, what, whatever animals you happen to have uh, in your region. Well, there's a couple uh, things to know about that, that, that animals... Uh, hunting animals, predators, are a little bit wary. And one thing that throws them off balance is the mobility of the coop itself. When you have a fixed chicken coop, you have to be very careful to not have anything uh, more than a quarter-inch gap anywhere. You can get rodents in there or snakes. And, mm. uh, you've got to have the wire really fastened tight to the boards and tight down and buried under the ground. Otherwise, predators will figure a way in there. But you're poultry tractor doesn't have to be, you know, bomb-proof. If it's moving every day, and this is often ideal, then the predators are going to be like, oh, I don't know about that. It wasn't there yesterday. Maybe I should watch it and see what it's up to. They're, uh, they take a much more cautious approach. So you gain some advantage in security for the animals just by the fact that you move them frequently. 
and the the whole concept I think is great because of the fact that it is mobile and you know as you mentioned you can you can apply the same principle to rabbits rabbits are fantastic especially if you have uh, a patch of land where you don't necessarily want to mow the land right. with the lawnmower the but, grass yeah and um just out of curiosity, do you have any recommendations for people who want to work with goats? Goats are an animal that likes poor uh, vegetation and rough browse, and they like to eat mostly about three-quarters of the time with their heads up, nibbling on shrubs and small trees that they can reach. So um, they don't benefit a lot from rich pasture. They're better off in a weedy, brushy, marginal bit of land if that's the situation you've got, then goats can work quite well. They're also very intelligent, and um, they're a bit of they're a bit of escape artists. So uh, <laughs> the traditional way to manage them was to put them with a with a young boy, maybe uh, between seven and twelve years of age, and have him herd them around with a stick. And he had to, you know, he would become the king Billy uh, goat, and they would follow him around. But in this day and age, if you're you know, you probably don't have a child on tap to keep care of your goats. You may have to figure out how to fence them in. And then you've got to fence up to about four foot eight and tightly. That is, they need several strands of wire because they can, they'll climb under or over and, and, uh, they, they like to follow their own, you know, nose, so to speak. <laughs> that they do. <laughs> um, on our farm, yeah. I was actually that goat herder, and uh, ah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know something goat, about that. sheep, you name it, uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> but um, it was, you know, it, it's it's something that you did because you had to do it. I yeah. mean, you had to allow them the opportunity to graze and yeah. to do what they do. And um, you, if you want healthy animals, you have to give them healthy food to eat. Yeah. Now, speaking of food and foraging, I'd like to just talk about uh, the portion of your book that talks about bee foraging. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a beekeeper myself, as you are. <laughs> so uh, I've had to learn a little bit about this. First thing to say is that uh, bees uh, are one of those great uh, animals to keep, and they are the smallest livestock that you might have, because they'll go and feed somewhere else and bring the food back, which is kind of neat. But they will range up to two or three miles away from the hives. So, you know, they they can be uh, feeding on all kinds of things. And you learn as a beekeeper that there are, there's a whole range of flowering throughout the year. And you're interested in what's, what's flowering right now and what are the bees feeding on. So we're always trying to watch out in the garden to see what are the bees where are the bees going? What are they interested in? What what do they like? What do they seem to prefer? Of course, they're also everywhere else besides your garden because they go way beyond it. Um, there are always major honey f or nectar flows thereafter the nectar, and they turn that into honey and pollen as well, which they need to do all their um, raising of their young and all that kind of thing. That's their protein food, and, and nectar is their carbohydrate. So certain things are really important to them. One of the ones that's very common and that people probably don't think about unless they're beekeepers is dandelions. In the spring, dandelions are a major source of nectar and pollen for the bees and a very early one. 
So, uh, you know, some people disparage dandelions, but I just look on them as a honey crop. And uh, other things like the black locust trees, are their flowers are a major uh, uh, source of nectar and pollen in the early spring. And then every place will have its own, of course. There's lots of clover and pastures and lawns and so forth, and bees are always after that. I, I know an old beekeeper around here who goes around uh, in the country with a bag of a sweet clover seed in his car or in his truck, and uh, he throws it along the roadsides because this will come up in flowers for a long time throughout the summer, and the bees love it. So it's a way of, of providing forage for his bees, even though he doesn't own the land. He just throws it along the roadside, and that gives them something to eat when they're out. So you become tuned into that. I give a long list of forage species, bee forage species, in my uh, appendix for different parts of the country so that you could begin to become familiar with the ones in your area and what seasons they're blooming. That's a really important thing, that the bees have access to a lot of different kinds of flowers. And I think it's especially important since most of the plants and shrubs that people are purchasing from garden centers and nurseries do have uh, or have been treated with different chemical applications, which uh, often contain neonicotinoids, which are devastating our honeybee population, as well as other pollinators. So uh, because these chemicals are not mandated uh, on the labels, it's unfortunate, but it's something that more homeowners are hopefully becoming aware of. But if you have land where you're, you're buying uh, different plants and trees, what have you, that you're planting on your land in for a particular look or just to incorporate it as part of the design, it's very important to remember that, okay, if that's the case, uh, you should try to buy your plants organically from uh, a, a tree farm or a place where you know that they have not, been, not treated. been treated. It's true. Yeah. It's one of the greatest disruptors right now to bees and why we're having so much difficulty so many uh, colonies are collapsing, bees are really suffering, and they're very, very important to our agriculture and to the health of uh, ecosystems generally. This is because there's too much chemical poison in the atmosphere. In particular, there's much concern, as you say, about uh, a set of compounds called neonicotinoids that are in certain uh, chemical um, agriculture formulations. There's Thank a lot of you. controversy about that. They're starting to talk about banning them in Europe. Uh, well, they have... Uh, very much in this country, yeah. They, yeah, they have banned the neonicotinoids in France and Germany, but, uh, you know, we're still working on... We're behind the times, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, well, we're still working on getting the public to understand the, dev yeah. the devastation that's being caused by these chemicals. But, you know, thanks to folks such as yourself that are educating so many people and getting the information out there so that more and more people can start reconnecting with nature if they haven't already and not just as individuals but as communities uh, there are so many people that write into the show or communicate with the show through social media uh, and Skype what have you that are so excited for the opportunity to be able to work with other like-minded people who understand that we need to take responsibility for not only how our food is grown, but for what we're doing to the environment, how we can 
continue to utilize the things that we have in nature, uh, not just the soil and the vegetation, but also energy, which um, for this particular show we didn't have or we don't have enough time to get into that, but the thing is is that we can strive to perfect what we're doing so that we are truly uh, utilizing the least amount of resources or uh, creating the least amount of impact, negative impact from what we are doing, and that's something that is really nice to see. Yes, that's well, it's something that's built up in our food system, too, because there's so much energy wasted in the present food system that when you begin to take uh, responsibility and grow some of your own and provide food locally for yourself, you're reducing your footprint, your energy footprint, along with that. And that just doesn't end. There's much of that that has to continue. So, uh, Peter, can you tell our audience what your website is and also how they can get more involved with your work? Well, yes. Um, we publish a magazine called Permaculture Activist, and the site is permacultureactivist.net. And my book, which is just out a few days now, uh, you can learn more about the Permaculture Handbook at permaculturehandbook.com. Uh, that's permacultureactivist.net and permaculturehandbook.com. And either of those is going to link you to uh, my activities and, and uh, appearances and what courses we're teaching and resources from the magazine and so forth. Thank you so much, Peter. It has been wonderful having you on the show today. Well, thank you, June. It's been my pleasure. And, folks, once again, for those of you that are interested in learning more, there's so much more to discuss, uh, and this book is really a marvelous uh, resource to learn all the different things to really help you become more sustainable and to create zero waste. I mean, so many different things that we need to consider, and it's nice to have a, a very um, condensed book that can really help guide you and teach you all the different things that really need to be considered that most people don't even think about. Uh, even the seasoned pros, there's so many things that we need to consider as we eliminate our dependency upon fossil fuels and as we're uh, learning how to do with less um, and also conserve our water. So um, thank you so much, Peter. It's been wonderful having you on the show. And folks, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Once again, the name of the book is The Permaculture Handbook by Mr. Peter Bain. Have a great afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.